Well, if I haven't met you before, my name's Rowan Kemp. I lead the staff team that work here alongside the EU. It's a great privilege to be with you here today. Glad you could come and make it. There's something really cool about having lots and lots of people crammed into one of the smaller cars or lecture theatres. Uh, it might be nice if one day we can manage to find a location that is bigger. We have been trying, actually, but at a, uh, this is sort of about the best lecture theatre we can find for this particular time. So I apologise if you're uh, sitting on the sides or, worse, still sitting up the back and you don't get to look at my beautiful bald head. You just have to listen to my rather bogan western suburbs accent. That's OK. I want to share with you a scandal that I was involved with. Actually, it's not that bad. I, I was a witness to the scandal, not actually involved in the scandal. It was when I was in Year 12, uh, and it was around... In Year 12, there really, there's only a couple of things that really dominate one's life, I guess. Uh, that is the end-of-year sort of formal, and those little quizzes that they call the HSC. Well, this particular scandal relates to the second one. That is, uh, in my Year 12 group, we'd just done the trials, and the school I was at, on the basis of your trial HSC mark, that was the whoever got the highest mark was declared ducks of the school. They didn't wait till the HSC results came out. They just based it on the base of the trial. Anyway, the, the scandal erupted because the guy who scored the highest in our school, in the HSC, did all humanities, and he got the highest mark. Now, at my school, there were lots and lots of sciencey people, heaps of them. And this was an utter outrage for them because they knew that come the HSC, if you've just got a maths paper or a physics paper or a chemistry paper, everything is right or wrong. And so if you just know all your stuff, you can pretty much get everything right and then just the way, because the, they have to give you a really high mark. They can't mark you heaps down just because you, you got everything right. So they said, but if you're writing an essay, I mean, that's so subjective. I mean, you, you're not going to get 20 out of 20 for every essay you write, are you? So it was an absolute scandal that this guy, whose name was Tim Dixon, that he actually, his name is Tim Dixon, and that a scandal that he actually got supposedly the highest mark in our school for the trial and was declared ducks. If you go back to that school, you'll see it up on the board, Tim Dixon. And it was complete and utter outrage amongst all the sciencey type people, of which, okay, I was one. Okay, <laughs> we're, we're horrified by this. However, when we all did the HSC, and when all the marks came back in, it turns out that Tim Dixon, blow me down, he actually did get the highest mark in the school. In fact, he actually got the highest mark in the state. <laughs> he topped the whole state of New South Wales in the HSC by doing basic mathematics and all humanities subjects. Lots of economics, lots of history, lots of English. And, and I, I remember chatting to some of the other guys going, wow, I guess Tim really could write after all. He really could write good essays. In fact, he still writes good essays because he's now currently Tim, uh, Kevin Rudd's chief speechwriter. <laughs> the guy really can write. <laughs> we severely underestimated Tim. We really underestimated him. And when you underestimate somebody, it affects how you relate to them or how you think about them, how you speak about them. And I wonder whether you have ever underestimated anyone, like I underestimated Tim. Or more particularly, I wonder whether you've ever underestimated God, the one true living God. Have you underestimated him? 
Because let me tell you, if you underestimate him, you will relate to him in ways that are not in accordance with actual reality. If your estimation of him is wrong, if it's underestimated, you'll relate to him in strange ways, ways that aren't actually appropriate for who he is and who you are. So this is an important question, actually. Have you underestimated God? Now, if you've been here with us as we've looked through these uh, first couple of chapters of Isaiah, as we've been doing this series, which I've called sort of God Uncovered, the one true living God revealing himself to the world through this particular prophet and this book in the Christian Old Testament, you might think, well, actually, I have learnt a bit about God over these couple of weeks. We've learned about God unexpected, his unexpected hatred of false religion, his unexpected judgment of his own people, his unexpected grace to those who would come back to him and repent and confess their need for him. We learn about his uncompromising holiness. We learn about his uncompromising mercy. There's lots of stuff that we've learned about the one true living God. So maybe you'll say, actually, yeah, I'll line up. I've underestimated God. I've underestimated him. Maybe that's you. In this case, I want to ask you this follow-up question. How do you think underestimating God is affecting the way you live week by week, day by day? How do you think your underestimation of God is affecting the way you live if you call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, week by week, day by day? Because I tell you, it will have an impact. Your underestimation of God will have real traction in your life. But do you know, what, do you know where it's showing itself? That's what we want to try and explore together today. So it would be really helpful if you had your Bible open or maybe you can look on with the person next to you. We're looking at a whole section from Isaiah chapter 7 through to Isaiah chapter 12, which is a rather large section of text. But that's nothing on next week when we're going to look from Isaiah 13 through to Isaiah 26. <laughs> that's okay. Isaiah chapter 7 through to Isaiah chapter 12. Now, I'm just going to give you a little handle on how these chapters function together. I may or may not get to the end, at the end of my talk, get to actually talk about this, so I'm going to throw it out there now. Um, Isaiah chapter 7 starts with the threat of annihilation. Isaiah chapter 7 starts with the threat of annihilation. Isaiah chapter 12 ends with a song of salvation. A song of salvation. Those two are connected, right? The threat of annihilation... And yet the Lord rescues, the Lord saves. And so God's people at the end of chapter 12 sing a, have a great song of salvation. That's sort of the big track that covers 7 to 12. And it, I guess in some ways if you even just got that, you can read anything in these chapters and maybe sort of fit it in. But what we're going to do is particularly focus on Isaiah chapter 7. And we'll dovetail a few times into sort of bits from the, the, those other chapters from 7 to 12 to try to explore it. Now I've got three headings up here on the board. Three ways we underestimate God sometimes. We underestimate his sovereign power, and we're going to spend most of our time there today. We underestimate his personal presence, and we'll spend a bit of time there today. And we underestimate his passion to bless, and we'll spend zero time there today, uh, because that will particularly sort of come back again next week. So in some ways I'm going to defer that important theme of these chapters till next week, because in some ways that's a, that's a theme of the whole of the book of Isaiah. So that's sort of what we're doing. Okay? So if you've got your Bible open there, let's have a look at Isaiah chapter 7, the first couple of verses. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, 
king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now, uh, we haven't had many historical markers so far in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 1 told us that Isaiah was a prophet of the Lord in Judah during the reign of four different Judean kings. So we knew that. Beginning of chapter 6 we were told that Isaiah's great vision of the Lord, which we saw last week, happened in the year that King Uzziah died. We've jumped forward here. It's not Uzziah. In Uzziah's life it's not even the son, uh, his son, but it's his grandson now who is reigning on the throne. So here is, I'll draw a bit of a picture for you. Here is King Ahab, who is king of Judah. Here is King Ahaz. What do we learn from chapter 7, verse 1? It gives you a very specific historical context. We're told that there's two other kings. First of all, there's King Rezin of Aram, also sort of Syria, known as Syria, and I'll give him some legs. And there's another king, King Pekah of Israel. Now Israel is sometimes called Ephraim, which you need to know when you read through these chapters, because sometimes it won't say Israel, it'll say Ephraim, just means the same thing. And Pekah actually often isn't named, he's often called instead He's identified by his father, who was Romalia. So sometimes it'll just say, and the son of Romalia, meaning King Pekah. Okay, that's just sort of helping you as you read these chapters. What does chapter 7 verse 1 tell you? These two dudes formed an alliance, Israel, God's, the northern, northern kingdom, and Aram. They've joined together and they're coming against Judah and King Ahab. And they try to come against it, but at the end of the day, they don't overpower it. Now, that's jumping forward to the end of the story. But let's see how the people of Judah were reacting when these two kings came against them. You read there, chapter 7, verse 2. What do you notice? Now, the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Don't let that just wash over you, right? You've seen the wind, right, go through a forest? You've seen it really blow, really shake the trees? That's how all the people, Ahab and his people in Judah, were feeling. I mean, these two kings have decided they're going to wipe us out. They're going to take us down. So there's the threat. There's the threat of annihilation. What's the Lord God, the one true living God, what's his response to this when his people, the people of Judah, are under threat? Let's have a look, verse 3 and following. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son. Now, Isaiah's sons have weird names, you'll notice in these couple of chapters. Uh, it says here, Sheer Jashub, but then when, oh, you've probably got a footnote too. If you look down to the footnote, uh, his name means a remnant will return or possibly even more literally, a remnant will repent. It's a weird thing to call your son, isn't it? A remnant will repent. Um, one of our uh, children, uh, we have five children, uh, one of our sons is named Baxter, um, which is a, I, I reckon it's a good name. Someone once told me it's a good name for a dog. I, I didn't appreciate that comment. But 
I guess it's not a terribly common name, and a few people, when we named back to back, he was born in 2006. Uh, sorry, 2004, I think. I can't actually... <laughs> 98, 2000, 2002, 2004. I have to work it out. Anyway, um, 2004, he's, he's five. You know, I should be able to do the math. Anyway, uh, when he was born, people said, Baxter, why are you calling your son Baxter? And in particular, if you remember anything, you may not, of what was going on in Australian politics at the time, around that time, uh, one of the mega issues was detention centres and one of the notorious detention centres was, of course, the Baxter Detention Centre. And here we are having a baby and naming him Baxter. And people actually said to me, why, well, is this some sort of prophetic thing? Are you actually trying to make a statement to the nation by naming your kid after this? I said, no, no, we're actually just naming him after the chemicals in the hospital because all the chemicals in the hospital are named Baxter from Baxter Chemicals. That was a joke too, that didn't, wasn't too right. But no, we just liked the name, we just used the name. We wasn't actually trying to make a statement, but Isaiah's kids are named a certain way to make a certain statement. Right? So notice that his name is a remnant will repent. So take your son, go out, he says, uh, the Lord says, to the end of the aqueduct at the upper pool on the road to the laundress field. Say to Ahaz there, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood. That's an insult, by the way, about Aram and Israel. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not happen. It will not take place. For the head of Aram is Damascus, that's the capital city, and the head of Damascus is only Rezin, the king. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, the capital city, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. What's the Lord's comment here? His real comment is, who is sovereignly in charge? You look at Aram. Head of Aram is just the capital city, Damascus. Who's, who's in charge of that? Rezin, a human being. Look at Israel. Who's in charge there? Well, the son, Pekah, Ramalia's son. He's just a human being. Why are you scared of human beings when I am the Lord? What do we just see in chapter 6? Who's enthroned up high, so high that the hem of his robe fills the whole temple? It's the Lord God. We know who really is king. The Lord God is king, the one true living God. So what he's saying here is actually don't worry about these kings because I'm the one who has sovereign power over all things. And he then tells, therefore, uh, Ahab and the people what to do. That is, stand firm in your faith. Don't be afraid. Just stand firm. Now, I wonder if you can imagine, I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to be king of a nation with two other countries having formed an alliance and declared war against your country. And the Lord here saying is, don't worry, just stand firm in your faith. It won't happen. They will, will not succeed. Well, that's a, that's, man, that's a testing situation, isn't it, for your faith? Are you just going to... And actually, you know what Ahab's response was? His response was, I just don't think that's sure enough. I don't just, th I don't think that's not enough. 
Look at his response there in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. The Lord's trying to reassure Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. You know, just ask for any sign you like. I'll show it to you. You want to put out a fleece like Gideon? I'll do that. Any sign you like, I'll do it just to reassure you that I'm, I'm, I'll keep my word. Ahaz's response is a bit unusual. He says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Well, that's all very righteous, isn't it? You know, because you're not meant to put the Lord God to, to the test. However, the Lord just said, ask me for a sign. You go, no, I will not. <laughs> I just, hello. He's just, I think you're getting a bit of a window there into actually Ahaz's attitude to the Lord. It's pretty much, mm, you can say that, but actually I'll do my own thing. And I'll make up my own reasons for it. So what does Ahaz do instead? Well, he might have been scared by these two, but over here to the east is a really big dude. The king of the superpower. The king of the superpower, Assyria. So what Ahab does is Ahab says, hmm, I know these two dudes, these two kings, are very stressed about Assyria because Assyria was the superpower who was just sweeping through that whole sort of part of the world, just taking nation after nation after nation. These two guys, Rezin and Pekah, the reason they wanted to invade Judah is because it seems they wanted Judah's resources and want to co-opt forcibly, if necessary, Judah, into making a stand against Assyria. So it's like us saying, ah, oh, we're really scared of the Tasmanians. <laughs> oh, so what we'll do is we'll, we want New Zealand to make a stand with us against the Tasmanians. But New Zealand won't have any part of it. Okay, so, but New Zealand have all those sheep. That'll be really useful. <laughs> I, okay, I don't know why. But anyway, and so... We will go and, because they won't join, we will go and take New Zealand first, then we'll have all their sheep, and then we can stand against Tasmania. That's the sort of thinking, right? So, I'm sure that made it very clear to you. What does Ahab do? What does Ahab do? This is what he does. He actually says, well, you know what? Hmm. I'm going to make an alliance with Assyria. I will offer myself to Assyria. Now, what did the Lord said to do? Stand firm in your faith. Don't fear. What they're planning won't come to pass. Ahab, hmm, that's not quite good enough for me. He takes matters into his own hands. If you've got a Bible there, turn to 2 Kings chapter 16. You can see another account of what actually took place. 2 Kings chapter 16. The whole chapter is about Ahaz's time as king of Israel, uh, king of Judah. Sorry, I'm going to jump down to um, verse five. Two Kings, chapter sixteen, verse five. Then Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but they could not overpower him. At that time, Rezin, king of Aram, recovered Elath for Aram by driving out the people of Judah. Edomites then moved into Elath and have lived there to this day. Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pilzer, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord 
and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He deported its inhabitants to Kit, or to Kerr, and put Rezin to death. I have been given a very specific instruction. Do nothing, just trust in me. But instead he makes an alliance with Assyria and takes all the gold and the silver that have been stored up in the temple of the Lord God, all these treasures stored for the Lord, and sends them, holus bolus, off to Assyria and says, whose servant is he meant to be, by the way? Isn't he meant to be the Lord's servant? No, I'm the king of Assyria's servant. I'm your vassal. Just do whatever you can do. And so he sends it all off, forms alliance, and Assyria complies. Says, okay, sure, no worries. That was an easy victory, wasn't it? I've got all the gold and silver. You're now my vassal. You'll do what I want. And sure, he comes out. And sure enough, if you follow it through in the history, the ancient historians tell us if this prophecy happened in about 734 BC, which is what they think, in 732, just two years later, Assyria comes and wipes out Aram, as we just read. Ten years later, in 722 BC, Assyria comes and wipes out Israel. So you're thinking, okay, it's looking pretty good. Actually, maybe Ahab did a good thing. Maybe he succeeded. Well, flick back to Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7. Let's see how the Lord responds to Ahab's treaty negotiations. Then Isaiah said, verse 13, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of human beings? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The young woman will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So, so far so good. The Lord's saying, well, you should have done what I asked you to do, but I'm going to give you this sign, which we'll come back to, the sign of this Emmanuel. And before he's a certain sort of stage, both these kings that you dread will be wiped out. You're thinking, okay, so God's going to keep his promise anyway. But then get verse 17. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father, a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah, he will bring the king of Assyria. And if you read on uh, that next little bit, he's going to talk about how he's going to whistle. Oh, I can't whistle. He's going to whistle. And Assyria is going to come and not just wipe out these two dudes, but Assyria is actually going to come against Judah. Oh, but come on, Judah formed an alliance. Yeah, but as the weaker player, you've ever played Risk? The world is just like risk, or risk is just like the world. I don't know. But um, that is, you're the weaker partner, you form an alliance. If it's in their interest, you know, what do they care about the alliance? You know, it doesn't matter about your protests. And sure enough, in 701 BC, Assyria come against the land of Judah. Now, you may, I don't know how well you know the Old Testament. Um, if you know it a bit, you know that northern kingdom Israel wiped out by Assyria, southern kingdom Judah wiped out by Babylon, right? You might know that. But you may not have known that actually Assyria was on the very point of wiping out Judah. In 701, when Assyria came, they took the entire land of Judah and they got to the city walls of Jerusalem. 
They've taken the whole nation except for the capital. Why? Why had Assyria been allowed to do this? Well, because God is sovereignly in control. It is the Lord God, the one true living God, who has sovereign power. And because of Ahab and the people's unfaithfulness, that they wouldn't just stand in faith, he was, to quote the way he talks about it in chapter 8 of Isaiah, the Lord was picking up Assyria like a razor and he was using Assyria to shave his people as discipline. He's using Assyria to discipline his people and they come right up to the city walls. And in fact, uh, also in chapter 8, the Lord describes it as a flood. He says, uh, I'm going to, the Euphrates was sort of over in Assyria's direction. He said, the the river Euphrates is going to flood and Assyria is going to flood into Judah and it's going to come right up to your very neck. Which it did, right? It came all the way to the city walls. A drowning flood right up to your very neck. And it's only at that point, only at that point, that they are saved. You have to wait a little while till we see that sort of later in the book of Isaiah. But you see here, who is in sovereign control here? Pretty clearly, it's the Lord, isn't it? It's the Lord who says, Pika and Rezin, you don't need to worry about them, I'll sort them out. He uses Assyria to do it. It's the, it's the Lord who has absolutely sovereign control here and that's where Ahaz went wrong. He made a fundamental wrong move. He didn't trust the Lord. He underestimated the Lord and says, you don't actually have sovereign power over this. I need to do something to secure myself. It was a classic wrong move. And it all comes from underestimating the one true living God. Underestimating his sovereign power. So I I want to reflect on this a little bit with you. I want to think about, well, how does that impact on you and me? I mean, we're not in this situation. However, what we do know is that God is today who he was then and who he will be for all eternity. This is the one true living God. The God who has sovereign power even over the nations. He's so sovereign, in fact. How sovereign is he? I hear you ask. He's so sovereign... That in chapter 10, I think it is, is it chapter 10 of Isaiah? In chapter 10, yes. Chapter 10 of Isaiah, verse 5. He's so sovereign that he can use Assyria as his razor, even though Assyria don't really realise it. And Assyria think they're doing it for their own reasons. So looking at chapter 10, verse 5, the Lord says... Woe to the Assyrian, to the rod of my anger. So he's using Assyria as his rod, right? Woe to them in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me to seize, loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy to put an end to many nations. Are not my commanders all kings, he says. Has not Kalno fared like Carmesh? Is not Hamath like Arpad and Samaria like Damascus? Has my hand seized the kingdoms of the idols, kingdoms whose images excelled those of Judah, uh, Jerusalem and Samaria? Shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her idols as I dealt with Samaria and her idols? When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, 
I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. Here is the mystery of God who has sovereign power over all things, right? He's saying, I'm going to use Assyria, wicked Assyria, evil intentioned Assyria, as the rod of my anger, as to, to, to shave my people, as the instrument of my discipline. However, I'm also going to hold Assyria culpable, morally responsible for their own actions and for their own wickedness in doing this, for the, the pride of their heart and their haughty attitude, they too will be judged. You go, well, that's, that's a bit, that feels a bit tough, doesn't it? Like, aren't they just being doing what God wanted them to do and yet he holds them accountable and say, yes, this is the, this is the element of opaqueness to God's sovereignty. That the, the Bible consistently, and here's just one example, the Bible consistently upholds that humanity really does make moral choices, spontaneous personal choices, for which you're rightly held responsible by God. However, at the same time, somehow, as one writer put it, the Lord manages to sustain those choices that you can make to overrule those choices in some, some way, but somehow doesn't completely override the fact that you, you are the one making those choices. And one writer put it, that the Lord works like that is clear in Scripture. How he manages to actually do that is his secret. It's not entirely clear to us. If you want that sort of drilled down to just a series of dot points that follow logically one from the other, I can't do it for you. No one can. Because they're at the bottom of drilling down into the scriptures are just these two truths. Humanity are genuinely responsible moral agents. It is the Lord God who is in sovereign control of all things. How can those two things together? The Bible doesn't clarify those for you any more than just getting down to those two fundamental axioms. That's the, the opaqueness within his sovereignty. But that he is sovereign is, is thoroughly clear throughout all this story. So, how does this relate to you and me? Well, you're not really faced with what being wiped out, I guess, by resin or pica or anything like that. If you're a Christian person, though, what do we know from the perspective of the New Testament? God's people have been under all sorts of threats throughout the years, sure. And the New Testament tells us that your struggle as a Christian is against the world, the flesh and the devil. You have armies arrayed against you. The world, the flesh and the devil. And what the Lord says to you, he says to me and to all followers of Jesus, is will you stand firm in your faith in the face of those enemies? Or will you stop trusting the Lord who has sovereign control? And will you therefore seek to secure your own future? I'll give you some examples. Uh, there's lots in the New Testament, lots in the Bible about money and how the rich are warned to not put their trust in riches. In fact, God's people are told to be uber generous with the, all of their goods. Jesus actually says to his disciples, why are you worried about what you will eat in the future, what you will wear, basic necessities? Instead, he said, in fact, you can be so unworried about those things, you can actually sell your possessions and give them to the needy who are around you at the moment. Because your father knows what you need and as you seek first his kingdom, he'll provide for you. 
Now, do you actually believe that? Do you actually hold that to be true? There's a word of the Lord, but we face the world, the flesh and the devil. We face the temptation that you have to secure your own future financially. To not do so would be foolish, surely. But you see, you've got two options. You either fear or you have faith. Are you going to fear what the world fears? Or actually, are you going to stand in your faith and live that out? It applies in the realm of relationships. Um, Who wants to be alone? No one wants to be alone. Everyone would like, wants to be loved by someone other than just their mum, you know. And some of us don't even get that, in all truth. Some of us don't even get that. What are you going to do? Are you going to be controlled by fear when it comes to relationships? I mean, you might be a Christian person and you know that, you know, the, the New Testament says that you, you should be seeking to, you know, marry somebody who's in the Lord, someone who's a fellow believer in Christ. Because really, if, you don't have, if, if Christ is the most important relationship in your life, how can you marry somebody who doesn't have that? That doesn't make sense, really. So, yeah, we know that, but I don't want to be left on the shelf. I mean, I... Right. And there's a person over here, they're, they're lovely, you know, and they're nice and they love me and they're not a Christian, but are you going to be dominated by fear? Are you going to be a person of faith? See, the challenges haven't changed for God's people. The challenge is, will you take a true estimation of who God really is, that he's the one in sovereign, powerful control? And will you respond in faith? That's the challenge. Okay, well, I said I was going to spend a long time in underestimating his sovereign power. The second thing just worth noticing, though, is this. (laughs) Don't worry. Give me three minutes. The reason being is I need to talk about this for three minutes because this needs to point you to Jesus somehow. And I just want to point out that in these chapters, there are three remarkable things said about God. How is God going to turn around this situation? Three chapters. Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 11. Three things we're told. First of all, in Isaiah 7, God says, This will be the sign that I will indeed rescue you. He says, The young woman will be with child, and they'll name him Emmanuel, God with us. Now, if you're a Christian person, you're going to say, I've heard that before. That's in... That's in those birth stories about Jesus. It is indeed, but you've got to think hard about it. Is that what Isaiah first meant when he wrote it? I don't think so. The young woman I think he's referring to is Jerusalem, the capital city. Chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 66. Both talk about Jerusalem as a woman. The young woman I think is Jerusalem and the child is the faithful remnant. That's why he took his son with him. A remnant will repent. The sign is that Jerusalem will yield, in the midst of all this discipline, a faithful remnant. That's going to be the sign. That there are people who claim the name of God, who live for God. That's the sign that God is going to see through his promises. Chapter 9 9 talks about a coming king or Messiah who will establish God's rule perfectly. Same in chapter 11, talks about the Messiah who will have the Spirit. But when you go to chapter 9 and see what it says about the Messiah, it says incredible things about this Messiah. Almost 
in human things. It says that this Messiah will be mighty God. How can a human being be mighty God? The point I'm making is this. These three streams, if you just have Isaiah, they're perplexing. How can they all work? How can this all happen? Is only from the New Testament perspective you start to see how these three streams come together in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And throughout the New Testament, the New Testament rise will source these chapters, chapters 7 to 12 of Isaiah, to explain who Jesus is. That he is the Messiah with the Spirit. He is the Messiah who is actually God incarnate. He is mighty God in our present, in our midst. He is also the faithful remnant, the faithful one from whom will spring the new people of God. So I want to say to you, don't underestimate God's powerful, personal presence with you. You might think it's too hard to stay faithful to God, but I say no, because you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, as um, actually was pointed out before by um, Phil for us, Jesus said, the last thing he said was, Behold, I am with you, Christian person, always to the very end of the age. God is, with, God is with you in the person of Jesus and the power of the Spirit in your own life so that you can live the life of faith. This is not too hard for you if you're a follower of Christ. And with that, I'm going to pray and we're going to go out and live for him this week. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for these encouraging words from Isaiah. Please help us, Father, by your Spirit to live a life of faith in your Son all the days you give us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Love to get your communication cards. Hand them in the doors of the way back. And afternoon tea is just outside there. Hope you can join us for it.